Good morning, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. <laughs> we could grab our seats. We're going to get started. Uh, pray for Pastor Tim. He's, uh, he's homesick today, so I'm filling on, in on the, the welcome in the morning announcement. So it's great to see everybody. Thank you for joining us. For those that are catching us online, we welcome you too. We'd much rather have you here so we can give you a hug, but we're glad you're joining us via uh, the internet. Uh, Tim asked me to make two announcements. One is we have an event on March 2nd, long-term financial planning and aging issues. More financial planning, less about the aging. Uh, that's on March 2nd, 2024, 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Uh, and it's with Nick Izzy, who is like the guru of financial planning. So it's a free program, it's great. If you find yourself in that age block where you're starting to think about your long-term planning retirement, it'll be a, a great program to attend. And then also next week, uh, after our morning service, we're going to have our annual administrative meeting. We'll go over the budget. We're going to celebrate some great things that happened during the course of the year. We're going to talk about the great things that are going to happen in 2024. And uh, we're going to review the budget with you and uh, get your feedback as well, of course. So uh, it, even if you're new to our church, uh, we would love to have you join us for that. Uh, just because it is, uh, is a time to celebrate what's, what God is doing here and how he's using us. And uh, we'd, we'd like you to hear uh, the plans that we have and uh, be a part of that. And once again, don't be afraid to give input, even if you're new. Uh, you know, we're all the body of Christ. It doesn't matter how long you've been here, right? So, so with that said, let's open in prayer, and then we'll turn things over to the folks behind me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we could gather here today. We thank you for the blessing of our salvation, for your care, and the comfort that you provide to us, Lord God. We thank you for providing for our needs and for just the constant blessing you are to us, Lord God. Lord, I pray for the service this morning, uh, that you would reign throughout, uh, that we would uh, be attentive to the the leading of your Holy Spirit throughout this service, Lord God. And we hold our pastor up to you. We pray that you would bring quick healing to him and uh, uh, give him the rest that he, is, that he needs uh, at this time of his illness, Lord God. Uh, may we glorify you in all that we do, all that we say, the words that are spoken, and the, the song that is sung in appreciation of your blessings to us. In Jesus' name, amen.
today that give you glory for you indeed are the health and salvation of our souls as the song said and praised you melt away our clouds of sin and sadness and drive away the darkness of our doubts and become again the light of day to our souls. For you are the great high priest in heaven who intercedes for us and continuously intercedes for us, O Lord. Remember us, 
For we are beset by many things all the time, it seems sometimes, Lord. For, Lord, we can't heal ourselves of our sicknesses. We can't cover our sins, and we can't save our souls. Father in heaven, have mercy on us now, for we are all prideful, and pride is defeating. Our own pride, our own selves are defeating us every day. But you have been victorious over ourselves and our evil on the cross when you purchased us as a ransom and you gave your blood as a sacrifice that would attain our atonement for all time, past, present, and future sins. But Lord, we sincerely ask now that you would show us and humble us each and every moment of our day. Take our hearts and search them for every last vestige of pride that we may be emptied. As you emptied yourself on the cross for us, you deemed it nothing to become nothing for us and become a servant. Help us, Lord, now to rid ourselves of this pride and to take on the humility that you modeled for us, that we may be exalted in the end by the power of your Son, and who intercedes on us in the power of your Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name now. Amen. You may be seated. If you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we're on the Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. probably know a lot of people that struggle with anxiety and anger. Those twin things uh, seem to be epidemic in our culture. Um, anxiety, the fears, the insecurities, the doubts, um, the worries that can dominate people's lives. They can dominate people's lives in such a way that they find themselves not being able to sleep. It affects their relationships. It affects them physically, and they are dominated. And it almost feels at times for that type of person that they're divided within themselves. Their thoughts attack them, and they find themselves struggling with trying to get on top of those anxieties. Maybe, maybe that's you. Uh, there's also 
a lot of anger in our society. Um, the vitriol, the conflict, the chaos, the struggles that happen, uh, struggles between marriage partners, struggles in families, struggles at work, struggles in the road, struggles in the politics. Um, it's just a lot of struggles today. And there may be other areas that people struggle, um, you know, depression or guilt or all other things as well, but it just seems like the anxieties seem to be ramping up and the anger seems to be ramping up. And Jesus, um, I believe that some of the things that he will share with you today uh, through the end of these Beatitudes will give you some answers to some of those anxieties and anger that you have. Now, as we've talked last week, uh, the Beatitudes are a character of a true disciple. Um, it's, it's almost like a pathway, but it's a continual pathway. You don't just go from poor in spirit and mourning over your sin and meekness and hungering and thirsting, and then you just hit that stage and you pass it, and you hit the next stage and you pass it, and you hit the next stage. It is something that you will be doing throughout your Christian life. And we're going to build on those four that we gave you last week, and we're going to build on four more this week. Uh, last week, if you remember, we talked about the need, and your desperate need, and my desperate need, is to be poor in spirit. As, as we saw here, it says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. We, we talked also about the fact that blessedness is a favor. It's not just happiness. Happiness can be temporary. It can be superficial. Um, and this blessedness is something that we do not deserve. It's granted to us by God. And it is given to those that do not deserve it, cannot merit it. So you're blessed. And if you remember, we talked from the Old Testament, there were curses and blessings. Um, oracles of woe, cursing, and oracles of weal, blessing. And these different cursings and blessings, of course, nobody wants to be cursed. Everyone wants to receive the blessing of God. And he begins the Sermon on the Mount with these blessings. And he's just pouring blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And he's saying that this is the characteristic of those that are in the kingdom. Uh, as with other things that we will see in scripture, this is a package deal. You know, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, which we see in uh, Galatians 5. I will often ask people, which of those do you have? It's a trick question, um, because if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you have all of them. Now, some of them are, are seeing, showing themselves a lot more above the surface, and others are not, um, but they're there. And for a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, this package deal you have if you are truly in Christ. It's, it's the idea of conduct, but more than that, he's talking about character and it's the values that are the characteristics of the kingdom. It's, it's the heart that happens in a believer's life. And Jesus is calling you to focus on the inner transformation that should be happening, and then he produces that into external things that should be evident in your life. Now, we talked about poor in spirit, and if you remember last week, we talked about that as spiritually bankrupt. I've got nothing, as my boss says at work. You know, I've got nothing. And you and I come to the cross, and we should say we have nothing except to bring you all my sin, all my guilt, all my condemnation, all the ways I have rejected you in my thoughts, words, attitudes, and actions. That's what I bring to you, Christ. I bring nothing of any merit or any benefit. 
And that should open the door for humility in my life, that I am coming to you not as a proud person saying that I am self-righteous or I, I can make it on my own. I should be coming in such a way that I've got really nothing, God. I really don't understand why you would even want to entertain a relationship with me. But it's not just poor in spirit. If you remember, now you're moving along the process to those who mourn. I was just talking to my class this morning, and the greater vision that you get of God, you'll have a greater vision of yourself. The more you see God for who he is, he shines this bright light upon you, not just the external things that you do, but he, he shines a light onto the inner motives of your heart. In fact, it says in Hebrews that scripture even cuts down to motives, and, and it cuts down to the very heart of who you are, the why behind what we do. And that's exactly what happens, is that God shines his light. We are poor in spirit. I've got nothing in my hands, God. I've got nothing to bring you. But now I am mourning over my sin. I, I see my sin, and I see your blessed Savior, and I see the fact that he bled and died for me. He took my hell, what you would have given me in eternity in hell, he took that upon himself. I owe nothing. I have nothing. And that should lead us to brokenness. Brokenness over my sin. And we talked about 2 Corinthians 7, where you have worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow last week. And we talked about the fact that real sorrow is the fact that you recognize that you've sinned against a holy God and you've affected other people. But it was mourning not just over my own sin, but it was mourning over the sins that are happening in the world. If you remember that Jesus Christ was called a man of what? Sorrow and acquainted with grief. He had no sin of his own, but he saw the brokenness of this world and he mourned. We, we should see the brokenness as we hear of brokenness instead of, I guess we'll talk about this this morning, Lord willing, the things that we laugh at sometimes is sometimes the brokenness of humanity. And it's like, why do we laugh at that? Why are the shows that are entertaining us seeing the brokenness of humanity? That should grieve us. That's what, what he's getting at. The, the poor in spirit leads to those who are mourn. The sorrow reflects a heart sensitivity to God. God's holiness and our sinfulness. That led to the third characteristic or beatitude that we talked about last week is blessed are the meek. So it, it flows, right? Because I, I've got nothing, poor in spirit. It should cause me to mourn over my sin and then it should lead to a meekness of life. And you remember there were two people that scripture said are meek. You remember the two, Moses and Jesus. And meekness, we talked about, was not weakness, but it was actually strength under control that, that these two men, Moses, leading these people out of Egypt through the desert to the promised land. Millions of people, perhaps, are following him, and he's leading these people, and he could have led them ruthlessly, but he didn't. He could have led them for his own benefit. He didn't. He could have attacked them. He didn't. He got attacked over and over again by his brother and sister, by people around him, by the nation. And in meekness, humility, and gentleness, a willingness to submit to God's will. Now, Moses had a struggle with anger, and it's part of the reason why he did not get into the promised land. But over and over again, he modeled meekness. Of course, the greatest meek person, the most, the pinnacle of meekness was Christ, because Christ spoke this world into existence. Colossians says he holds this world and the universe in his hands, he sustains all things. The God that sustains all things is the God who humbled himself to take on a human body. 
He was the one that put himself under the law that he wrote. He was chastised by people. He was attacked by people. He put himself on a bloody cross for you and for me. He humbled himself even to the point of death, the meekness that he showed. He could have called down legions of angels to take them out. You remember when Peter cut off Malchus's ear? He says, I, I could call down legions of angels. Put your sword away, Peter. The meekness, the humility, the gentleness, the willingness to submit to God's will, not my will, God, let yours be done. He said that the promise for the poor in spirit is what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The promise for those who mourn, guess what? You'll be comforted. I, talk, I took you to the Isaiah passage in Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people. I love that, says the Lord. The fourth that we dealt with last week, and I said maybe it's the central one. I'm not sure. That blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. A deep desire for personal holiness. I had said that um, when we put our resolutions together, our yearly goals, you know, I, I write yearly goals and then I look at them and translate them into monthly goals and then weekly goals. Um, I don't know if you do that, but how many of us have as a goal of our lives, righteousness? That should be the deep desire that I just want to be personally holy, Lord. I want to see justice in this world, but it, it, it won't ultimately happen. But I desire justice, so I'm going to try to encourage justice between people. But I want a holiness in my life that is reflective of you. That is the hunger and the thirsting. See, that, should, that hungering that humanity has, humanity struggles with hungering for so many different things. And most of those things will only temporarily satisfy them. It won't last. But this type of hunger and this type of thirst, guess what it will do? It will fill you and it will satisfy you because Christ is the great satisfier. One pastor has a ministry called Desiring God, and he says that God is most glorified in us when we are what? Most satisfied in him. I love that line. He's built a 50-year ministry off of that line. You can build a whole lifetime off that line. That the more I find myself satisfied, content, happy in God, that will cause me to be reflective of his will in my relationships. I would guarantee you that when you struggle and when I struggle in relationships, it's because... I'm not satisfied in God, and I'm looking for earthly satisfaction. We go to Romans chapter 1, and Romans chapter 1 says instead of glorifying the Creator and being grateful to the Creator, we look for satisfaction with creation. That's us. I want my car to satisfy me. I want my home to satisfy me. I want my wife or my kids to satisfy me. I look for creation to satisfy me when only the Creator will. The Beatitudes call for a radical reorientation of your life. I told you, it was countercultural. This doesn't make sense to those people outside of here. And it's a challenge. Now, I don't want you to see this as a ladder to climb up to receiving God's forgiveness and grace. You don't do this in order to be saved. You are this because you are saved. Okay? It's radically different. 
So you're not doing this, and Jesus says, well, you didn't hit that ladder yet. You're not close enough to the kingdom. What he's saying is this, I am going to put this package in your life, and then over and over and over in time, I am going to create these attitudes in you by the work of the Holy Spirit so that you start to look more and more like me. And then ultimately in eternity, you're going to get all the blessings but you're getting these blessings time after time now. So now he has talked about your need, your great need, poor in spirit, that you need to mourn over your sin and that you need to deal with life in meek ways. And you can inherit the earth, you can get comfort, and you can be part of the kingdom. And then he hungers and thirsts, that hungering and thirsting, that passion. And now he goes into how you live. And he says this in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. As you think about mercy, mercy is interesting. Uh, Lenski in his commentary said this, mercy is compassion for people in need. He distinguishes it from grace. The noun mercy always deals with what we see of pain, misery, distress, these results of sin. But charis, grace, always deals with sin and guilt itself. The one extends relief, the other one extends pardon. The one extends a cure and healing and help, the other one cleansing and reinstates. See, mercy is is both a... It's both a feeling and it's an action. If you remember the um, Good Samaritan, story of the Good Samaritan, what do we see? This, This person who's in need and one person after another has no heart compassion and then does nothing to respond to the need in action. Mercy, on the other hand, feels a heart compassion and then works towards trying to meet that need. It's actually a reflection of God himself. So when you are merciful, you are reflecting God because he has a compassion for you. And then Jesus left heaven for you. It's the core of God's life or his his characteristics. One one passage in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. You've heard this before. In Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, watch what he says. This is how he defines himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Do you hear that? God is merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. That was said, I believe, seven different times in Scripture in the Old Testament. God God wants you to hear this pronouncement of who he is. I'm merciful. I have compassion for you. I am acting. I'm acting to deal with your pain and your misery. I'm slow to anger. I'm not quick to anger. He holds back his wrath against us. He's abounding in steadfast love, has said faithful love. His love is not fickle and goes up and down. His love is consistent and it's steadfast for you. He's faithful. Paul said in 2 Timothy that when we are faithless, he will remain what? Faithful. Faithful, for he can't deny himself. 
In Ephesians, I love this passage. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, it says this. But God, those two words, I love those, being rich in mercy. I wonder, um, rich, he, he is super abundant in mercy. He's got more mercy than you could ever imagine. Paul said in, in Romans that where sin abounds, what grace abounds all the more. This is not just a small amount of mercy. This is mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy that God wants to pour into your life. Or how about this? Surely goodness and what? Mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That is the God that you serve. In Titus chapter three, it says he saved us, verse five, not because of the works done in us by righteousness, no, but according to his own mercy, the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So I want you to see that God is a God of mercy, compassion from the inside and then actions of mercy. And that's what we're called to be. Remember in Micah, he said, he has shown you, O man or woman, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do what? To do what is right, act justly, and to love in a merciful way and to walk humbly with our God. It's, it's, it's this pattern of if you are a Christian and if you really got the gospel right and you recognize I'm poor in spirit, I've got nothing, that I mourned over my sin, that God has rescued me and I could be meek, I hunger and thirst for that righteousness in my life, I should be a receiver of mercy because I already have in God and I should be an extender of that mercy. It's so sad that so many people today struggle with such anger and bitterness. The woundedness that people find, they, they have truly been wounded perhaps, or maybe they haven't truly been wounded, but whatever it is, the woundedness that is within them leads to bitterness in their hearts, leads to resentment over and over again, and they attack people over and over again, and they see themselves as right, and they judge other people, and they attack other people, and God says, you're called to be merciful. That's why Jesus, when he was in, in John chapter, Matthew chapter 15, he had talked about the fact that you owe this unpayable debt to this king, and the king forgives you, all of it. And then you walk out after having this unpayable debt that the king says, I forgive you, it's wiped off your slate, you go out and find somebody that owes you $50,000. It's a big amount, but it's not unpayable. They could pay it in a couple of years, probably. And you want to throw them in prison. You want to attack them. You want to judge them. And when you do that, he's saying, you're not seeing the gospel. You're not seeing the kingdom. So we should be so merciful. And how, how do we show mercy? We should show mercy by maybe material needs. There's some people here that are struggling and there's something about this church. I love about this church. You know, we have our, our benevolence fund and that benevolence fund is usually got money in it and we have people that we can help. Love it. There are people that don't even worry about the benevolence fund. I know that there are people in this congregation that give and help other people because you want to serve them. So great. Meal train, the meal train that goes, I mean, the meals that come out. My family has benefited from meal trains from this congregation. 
There are merciful people here. We could do that. How about supporting somebody through their spiritual struggles and doubts? I just don't know where I am in my faith. People will sit here and pray with people and counsel people and help people and support people. That's how you could show it. How about when somebody fails miserably? What do you do? You expose it? No. There's some of us that will say, you know what, I'm going to be there to help you deal with that. I'm going to cover this. I'm going to deal with you and help you. Do we allow slanderous gossip out of our mouths? No, I don't want to do that. I want to be merciful. I'm not going to attack you. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. How about forgiving? Jesus says, you will know, the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I also believe that you will know, that people will know that you are his disciples if you have a willingness to forgive one another. I really do think that is the biggest thing. That if, if we were forgiving people because we have been forgiven, Jay Adams wrote a book, Forgiven and Forgiving, which are two elements, that if I get the forgiven piece, that should lead me to forgiving others. So mercy is about feeling pain. Mercy is about acting for the benefit of others. It's a characteristic so like Christ, so like God, compassion and meeting other people's needs. And what's your reward? You receive the mercy from God, which is pretty cool. Verse eight, pure in heart. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, see God, which is pretty awe-inspiring. I've got a massive headache right now, so if you could just pray for me right now, I'd really appreciate it. Yeah, so, um, yeah, blessed are the poor in spirit, because what God does is he is just... Um, awe-inspiring. And when we get a vision of who he is, the, the purity of this world is not there. It is absolutely fallen. But when you get a vision of God and then you see the fallenness of this world, it is, I wonder why God would even want a relationship with us. Hey, there's this natural call in our hearts to do what is wrong. And what God does is he transfers that. In Ezekiel, it talks about the fact that he gives you a new heart, a new spirit that he's put within you. What's seemingly impossible that I can have purity. What's seemingly impossible is that I could have enough purity that I could actually see God. God does something amazing. In, in Exodus chapter 33, it says, you cannot see my face for no man will see my face. But Jesus Christ walked with us. And walking with us, oh, oh, do I want, uh, thank you so much. You talk about service. (laughs) What am I looking at here? (laughs) That is servant. Um, Yeah, pure in heart. We, We see this. This, just lost it, sorry. Christ is redeemer. Christ is purifier. Christ transforms our sin and he brings us out and he transforms us. One, one thing that 
impurity does is it keeps us from seeing the light of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what purity is, is this. Purity is, in essence, an undivided heart. That's what it is. It's the fact that uh, I don't have these struggles, that I want to submit myself to you. And the more undivided that I am, the more I will live at peace. And it's, it's not that I am, don't ever sin. I mean, you have thoughts, you have things that happen in your life, you sin. But it's the fact that I share this with you. I expose this to you, God. I am not hiding anything from you. Our natural tendency is to hide our sin and to hide ourselves from him. And what God says is this, a pure in heart person is going to recognize that they have nothing that is hidden from me. So as you do that, what ends up happening is that you will find yourself time after time exposing these things. Stop hiding from God. Stop having these secrets. He already knows what's happening in your life. It's perpetually practicing the opportunity to be able to stand in the presence of God. As you stand in the vision of God, what he sees, his eyes, living under his presence, living under his authority, living for his glory, and I'm exposing this. One, one of the problems that we had with sin, back to the Garden of Eden, is the fact that when we sinned, what did we do? We covered up, we ran and hid, and we blamed. Humanity's tendency is to do that, but this person who's pure in spirit is a person that is so transparent, so open, that they are sharing with God exactly what's happening. It's not perfection, but it's honesty, really at the source of this. It's honesty with God. Our tendency in life is to not be honest. And so what does he say? That for those that are pure in heart, for those that want to show me, that are not undivided, not bound by anxieties, not bound by fears, not bound by these insecurities, because God, you know it all already, and you've forgiven me everything, that person can live at peace. And when they do that, they will see God. Remember where it says, he says, create in me, David says, a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Or how about the psalmist when the psalmist said, who shall ascend the holy hill of God? He who is in a holy place, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. He's saying that it's not just the external things that you do. It's about the internal things that does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. It's an inner battle, but it's an also an external external thing that happens. In the uniqueness of God, you stand before a pure and holy God. And when he sees you, he sees unholiness in your life. But in Christ, he sees Christ's righteousness. He sees Christ's purity. And that's why Isaiah, when he went into God's presence, he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole world is full of his glory. He, he sees this, he hears this, and he says, woe is me, because he saw himself as impure. But the person that's pure in spirit is honest, is open, and recognizing that, God, you have cleansed me. One of the most beautiful, um, beautiful doctrines of Scripture is the fact of justification. Justification is where God declares a believer, in a legal sense, righteous in his sight. 
He looks at you as though you have lived the perfect life of Christ. And in Romans chapter five, verse one, it says, therefore, since we have been justified with faith, by faith, we have what? Peace with God. So God does a work in you so that he can do a work through you. He, he justifies you. He declares you're not guilty. He is purifying you day after day. In Titus, we were reading this earlier, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not by our works, but what was done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the new renewal of the Spirit. So how do I have an honest heart? How do I have a pure heart? I, I have to start with number one, I need to acknowledge the um, possibility of a clean heart in Christ. And I do that by, I can only have that clean heart in Christ. I got nothing, God. And the second thing I need to do is I need to embrace the scriptures that tell me that I get a clean heart by asking for it. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We do it by praying that God would give us a pure heart. Number three, or number six, seven, the peacemaker. Verse 9, it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So I had talked about the fact that we have a lot of anger in this world, and I have a lot of anxieties in this world, and those two things hinder people's peace. And the significance of being a peacemaker is that you are once again reflecting Christ's character into the world. And this connection between you being a peacemaker and you being a son of God, that people look at you and say, there's something different about this person. And the radical violence that we have and the radical strife that we have is happening over and over again in our society. But the biblical call for peace, peace within, peace with God, peace with others, that as you reflect God, that peace should be so reigning in your heart and your life. It talks about in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. If in doing so, they are not enslaved, God has called you to live at peace. He's talking about even in various contexts of our lives, deceit in Proverbs 12, 20, deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. In Hebrews 12, 14, it says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There are different contexts that you're gonna live in this world, whether it's in marriage or whether people around you, but you should be striving for peace within. You're called to be a peacemaker, one who brings peace because you possess it in Christ. And it's the fact that the internal conflicts are dealt with because God, I bring them to you. I, I, I bring these fears, these insecurities and doubts to you, the internal conflicts that you have. If you deal with those that will help you with the external conflicts as well. James said in James chapter four, he said, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. He was saying that the external conflicts that you have are a byproduct of the internal conflicts of your own heart. 
So as we grow in Christ-likeness, what do we see? We see that there's a battle that happens and there's a war. My, my sinful flesh wants to go to war against Christ living in me by his Holy Spirit. And as I go through that battle, I need to recognize that there's an internal battle, but as I deal with that internal battle, it will help me to deal with the external battles. And when I see the gospel and put the gospel central in my heart and my life, that should have caused me to be a person who seeks peace. By doing that, you'll relinquish personal rights. By doing that, you'll be proactive in seeking resolution. By doing that, you'll see a distinction between conflict avoidance and actively pursuing peace. Paul said in Romans chapter five, he says, but God shows his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if you can keep that in your mind, the peacemaker is actively working to create peace and to resolve conflicts. They're representing the character of God, and when they do that, they become a peacemaker. The ultimate peacemaker shines through you, the minimal peacemaker. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So the last three that we just dealt with, the fact that you're merciful, the fact that you are pure in heart, and the fact that you're peacemakers, that is taking you to these horizontal relationships. And now as you keep in mind, I am countercultural. You're countercultural. You're pure in spirit. I mean, you're poor in spirit. You're mourning over your sin. You are meek in this world. You are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, which inevitably is going to lead you to be countercultural because you're hungering and thirsting not to gain more, but to reflect more of God. And now you're merciful. You're forgiving people that the world would never forgive. You are pure in heart because you're trying to expose God. You're trying to see God shine out of your life. And you're a peacemaker trying to bring people together. What do you get for your reward? Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He, he brings this great need to the passion, hungering and thirsting, to how you live out merciful, peacemaking, pure in heart to the world's gonna hate you. I think part of our anxieties that we struggle with is that we want the world to love us. We want the world to think well of us. And very honestly, a lot of them won't. If we speak the things that God says about sexuality in our culture today, you're going to be viewed as, um, well, hateful, um, arrogant, ignorant, foolish, divisive, destructive. And those are the words that are talked about today with us as people. And as you are sharing these truths with the world, the world will hate you. Now, they may just speak against you verbally. Sometimes they will attack you. 
And so what he's saying is this, I want you to be aware that you will be persecuted. You will be persecuted for tons of things, but you need to be persecuted here for what kind of sake? Righteousness sake. Righteousness sake is the fact that you are being persecuted for doing what is right. Now, some of us will get persecuted because we're pains in the neck. Sometimes we will get persecuted because we are pretty flippant and arrogant. Sometimes we'll get persecuted because of our own sin. That is not what he's talking about here. And Peter talked about it as well. If you're suffering for righteousness sake, I think he's, Peter's grabbing this from 1 Peter. He's grabbing this from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here. He's saying that you could suffer for doing evil or you could suffer for doing right. Here he's talking about the fact that you will be blessed if you suffer for doing what is right. Some biblical examples of those that suffer for doing what is right. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm not going to bend down to this idol. You're going to go into a flaming furnace. I guess I will. I believe my God can save me, but if not, I'm still not bending down to your idol. Daniel, thrown into a lion's den. John Bunyan, he wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress. Love the book. John Bunyan was thrown into prison for 12 years because of his faith. There are people that are suffering all around this world today. At best, you and I probably suffer words against us. Maybe you'll suffer financially because maybe you'll lose a job or lose opportunities, but there are brothers and sisters around this world that are bleeding and dying and imprisoned for their faith. And God says, you're blessed. Blessed? Happy? You gotta be kidding me. Well, that's what the apostles did in the, in the book of Acts. Remember, they were beaten and they said, I'm so happy that I was worthy to be counted part of your kingdom and worthy to be punished in your name. There is something about persecution. Persecution will come because you're shining a light in the darkness and people don't like light at times. They like hiding. And I wonder when there's an absence of persecution in your life or my life, what is that saying? If the world is generally happy with me or generally happy with you and I can coincide with the world over and over again, what is that saying about what I'm really reflecting? Am I really reflecting the light of Christ the light of the gospel, the glory of grace. So if you don't have some level of persecution in your life, I would ask you to do a self-evaluation and say, God, what's going on in my life that these non-Christian people around me can be so comfortable with me? Maybe I don't ever rock the boat. Young people in school, this is a challenge, I'm telling you. Uh, as a principal of school, I mean, I see it. They're, and I live I'm at a Christian school. But I can't even imagine living in a secular world. But even at a Christian school, there are some that will do the right thing and they will be persecuted for it, slandered for it, definitely out in the world. And so if you're not enduring some level of persecution, I wonder whether we are living with the hunger and thirst for the righteousness. Now, I shouldn't be pursuing persecution. I shouldn't be desiring it to go after it so that I am so, I don't know, off base that I'm going to get that. 
What I should be doing is living in such a way that I'm living in such a life that is embracing Christ and reflecting Christ and so that he will do something amazing in me. So, the Beatitudes call the believer to a higher standard of living. A standard of living that reflects the glory of God. The challenge to be pure in spirit, the challenge to mourn over our sin, the challenge to be meek, the challenge to hunger and thirst, the challenge to be merciful and pure in spirit, the challenge to be a peacemaker when there's conflict around, the challenge to deal with persecution. All of it is difficult, but it is not impossible because Christ lives in you and through you. And the the rewards are pretty profound. The rewards for living this type of life are amazingly profound. You get kingdom. You get comfort. You get the world. You inherit the world. You receive mercy. You will be satisfied. You will be a peacemaker. And you will have eternity with him. So I wonder today... Are these characteristics that are reflective of you? Are these characteristics that are reflective of me? The reality is they're probably not, oftentimes. And so what do we need to do? We need to turn to the one that constantly showed these out. As he constantly showed these out in his life, because Jesus Christ is the true beatitude revealer. He reflected these beatitudes in his life. He reflect. <clears throat> he reflect. <clears throat> man, I am having a bad day here. He reflected these beatitudes through his life, and what he wants to do in you and through you is amazing. So when you fail, I'll end with this: the three different types of people that are probably in this room today. There's one person that is kind of like the Pharisees of Jesus's time self-righteous. You look at your life and you compare your life with everybody else and you say, the world is a mess. I'm pretty righteous. And as you compare yourself with maybe somebody that's sitting next to you or the world that's outside, you're comparing yourself horizontally and you say, I'm actually pretty good. By doing that, you're minimizing Christ. There's some people that are sitting in this room today that live their lives with an up and down relationship with God because it's based on their emotions. They feel good today, so they think that God is happy with them today. Or they feel bad today, and they think that God is not happy with them. And they're on this up and down roller coaster of emotions. The third person, the first person is the legalist who sees their righteousness but doesn't see their sin. The second person sees only their emotions as the reflector of truth. And the third person that sits in this room today is the person that sees their sin. But their sin has so dominated their lives. They see their sin and they they grieve over their sin. They feel overwhelmed by their sin and they can't imagine that God could ever want a relationship with me. If, if people really knew me, why would, they want a rela- why would he want a relationship with me? And what God does is this. God says for the self-righteous person, he gives them the law and he says, like the rich young ruler, you can't even keep the first or the 10th commandment. You can't keep the law. 
as he will do with the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. You think you're, you haven't committed adultery, but if you look at a person with lust, you have. You think you're not a murderer, but guess what? If you have done this, if you have anger in your heart, you've already been a murderer. You think you're righteous in your prayers, guess what? You're praying, but you're trying to do it so everybody else can see. He is exposing in our hearts that we are not self-righteous. We have nothing that we can bring. For those that are on this up and down emotional roller coaster, he says, I am consistent. I don't change. I am faithful. It doesn't matter about your fickle emotions. You're right in me. And for those that are so overwhelmed by your sin, that you look at even these beatitudes and say, I got none of it. Just go back to the first one again. I'm poor in spirit. Lord, I got nothing. And I'm over your sin. God will give you comfort. And then see the meekness that's there. God will change you. He'll give you the earth. And then hunger and thirst for righteousness. And as you do that, you'll see the mercy that he has given you. And now you are going to extend that mercy. And when you do that, guess what? You'll expose your heart so you'll be pure. And when you expose your heart, guess what? You will be a peacemaker. And when you do that, you'll suffer persecution. And when you fail, guess what? Go back up to the top again. Poor in spirit, mourn over sin over and over again and recognize that there is one who never failed and he loves you. So Lord, I praise you. For your kind grace. Father, these are characteristic qualities of our heart that are so unlike us. Father, they're so unlike the world I praise you for the fact that you've given us these by your Holy Spirit when you regenerated us, when you brought us to faith, when you caused us to be born again. You planted within us a desire to be poor in spirit. You exposed sin and you gave us a reflection of your glory and so that we mourn over our sin. Father, I thank you for the fact that you've given us an opportunity to be meek and gentle in in spite of the strength that you've given us. We're kingdom kids, but we don't have to rule ruthlessly with that power. I pray that you would give us the hunger and thirsting for righteousness, which your Holy Spirit did when he gave us a new heart. Lord, I pray that we be mercy givers because we have been mercy receivers. Lord, I pray that you would remind us that we could be peacemakers I pray that you would help us to be not people that hide and lie, but people that expose the truth to you and maybe to others in our lives. And Father, when we do suffer persecution, help us to know that ours is the kingdom of heaven. So do that work in us, Lord. Do that work through us. For those that don't know your son, I pray that they go to that first beatitude today, that they've got nothing in their hands and that they're running to your son's cross in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, and
freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I
we thank you for this time. It's just such a wonderful thing to just be in your word and learn. There's so much to learn. The more I learn, the more I realize how much more I need to learn. Uh, I just thank you for this portion of scripture. Go with us this week, Lord. Help us with these, these beatitudes. In your strength, we can have victory, Lord. Uh, we need you, so help us. We thank you for giving yourself to us, Lord, suffering as you did. All we need to do is trust and believe in you. Increase our faith, Lord, I pray. Go with us this week. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen.